0: Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker.
1: Uh, let's see. I think it's about 19 days in a wake-up. I'll be leaving uh, Aurora, where I live with my parents, to Fort Benning, Georgia, where I'm going to be training for the military. And uh, right now I'm a little bit nervous because I have a herniated disc in my back and we're going to go through some rigorous training. So um, I'm a little nervous about that as well. I'll be leaving behind a ministry that uh, I spent four years being involved in and seeing God do great and awesome things. And it's kind of the irony that as God takes me away during military training, it's almost as if I have to experience what it's like to be in college again, where um, I have to meet new people, be in a new environment. And when I, when I come back and there'll be this winter, um, the church has changed and home has changed. And so in a way, I see it as a blessing because God helps me to see through the eyes of college students. But at the same time, every time I leave, the moment I'm leaving, I always have this feeling, did I really sign up for the Army? I'm wondering, like, what am I doing with my life? But Every time I'm out there, God does something awesome. So that's pretty much the biggest thing that's going on right now in my life. That and just trying to um, grow as a minister and just as a worker for Christ. So that's pretty much it right now. I'll be leaving in about two, three weeks. So I guess my biggest prayer request is that um, when I'm out there, that God keeps me healthy as well. That um, that I'd be able to just be uh, just a light in a place where Uh, The military is definitely a place where Christ is needed, so I guess those are only two prayer requests.
0: All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for just the call that you have on our lives as individuals and as a church to be a part of your family, to be a part of your kingdom ministry, to see people come and find hope, to find rest in a relationship with you. Father, I thank you for Jason, and I thank you for the call that you have on his life, not only here at Harvest, but also in the Army. And I ask that you give him a sense of your presence wherever he may go, that when it seems like he's alone to know that he's not, when it seems like Things are difficult and are collapsing around him, even if they may very well be that you are there. Your presence is walking with him, even through the darkest of moments. Father, I also thank you for just the heart that you are developing in him to be one who walks among your people, to comfort, to strengthen, to encourage, and even at times to admonish. I would ask that you give him the sense of wisdom, to not only know what to say, but how to say it and when to say it. May the words that he speaks be words of life. May they be words that fill people with a sense of your son Jesus. And even now as he speaks, amidst uh, what is probably a very nervous situation, that you would give him that sense that speaking for you, there's no need to be nervous but to allow you to speak and to let you do your work in our lives. And Father, as a church today in this service, help us to expect more, not only of you, but of ourselves, and to be allowed to see that there's so much more that you want to do in us and so much more that you want to do through us. May an encounter with you be something that continually changes us, prevent us from being satisfied with the routine. Even now, may our hearts and minds be ready to receive. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Thank you, thank you, Pastor Frank. Um, as I was preparing and trying to figure out what to speak on, um, I guess this summer has been one of the uh, one really difficult summer, but at the same time, it's been a summer where God's done such amazing things in my life. So, uh, part of what I felt God leading me to share is just about God's captivating love and just how His love has ability to not only uh, not only be something that's that we know, but also something that transforms our hearts. So even before I speak, I just want to take a moment, and I feel like sometimes we don't get enough time to interact with one another, and oftentimes when I speak, I I have this, is that um let's take a moment and share with one another what you guys think love is, and secondly, the second question I want to ask is, or if want you guys to share is, what's one loving moment you've experienced or you saw recently? So we'll take maybe just... Five minutes to do that, and then I'll bring us back. Oh, just around the people around you, so. Going really fast, aren't I? Yeah. Not as nervous.
0: Give you guys maybe three more seconds
1: I think for me uh, one moment I saw that was that was pretty uh, emotionally difficult for me i I hate to admit but uh Recently, I've been watching season four of House with my parents, and I don't know if you guys saw the last episode, or the last two episodes, but man, I was just, like, I was just pretending like I was yawning, because I didn't want my, my parents to think I was crying during this scene, but I don't want to share it, because I don't want you guys to be ruined if you haven't seen it, but uh, it was just a tearjerker, so encourage you guys, if you guys really want to be touched emotionally, to see the last uh, episode of that but an- another thing, when I actually Googled love, um, and one thing that came up, or there were two things that came came up that was surprising. And usually it was two YouTube videos. And one was Bleeding Love, and the other one is What is Love? You know the one? Um, I don't want to sing it for you guys, because you'll probably conjure up uh, thoughts of Saturday Night Live, but it's What is Love? Baby, don't hurt me. Baby, don't hurt me. No more. And so many times... Um, I think PD's counseled me about relationships and he's rebuked me a lot about relationships. And it's been painful. I think one thing I've realized is that physical wounds may last a couple weeks, but emotional scars last a lifetime. And PD's really hit me where it hit me in the heart. But um uh, one thing that he always shared, I remember we we're walking down the hallways of the church and he was telling me, You know what, Jason, your generation is selfish. I was like, Okay. And then he said, you know, you guys just use people to love yourselves even more. And once they stop helping you love yourself, you leave them and you find someone else to help you love yourself even more. I thought about that for a second. I was like, man, that's so true. How many times in my own life where someone hasn't been loving towards me, I've withdrawn because I wasn't receiving their love. or Where they haven't been affirming or they haven't shared the things that I want them to share in my life. I just kind of took a step back because they weren't helping me love myself even more. I think the second thing he pointed out through the times I've been counseled by him is that we objectify love. And he, he kept on saying, Jason, you objectify love. I sat there, I was like, PD, my mind isn't as big as yours. I do not understand what you're talking about. And he kept on saying, "It's like, just think about it. And literally, I just kept on thinking and thinking and um, I went back to a book I read about maybe three years ago. It's Blue Like Jazz by Don Miller. And he talks about how how in life we use metaphors to help us understand and perceive what's going on. And he shares this time about where he comes to this college and there's this speaker. He's speaking about metaphors and he talks about cancer and how oftentimes people are overwhelmed when they hear about cancer because the metaphors that are used are so related to war, that we battle cancer, that we're fighting against cancer, that we're winning the battle, that we're losing, that we're gaining ground. And these metaphors begin to capture the way we view cancer. And what the uh, speaker was saying is that how we use these metaphors oftentimes shapes the way we view what's going on in our lives. And what I wanted you guys to share and understand what is love is that there's metaphors that we use to understand what love is. Uh, He continued to share that uh, the the speaker asked asked the group, what are some of the metaphors that we use to understand love? He said that, you know, one person raised their hands, we value people. Another person raised their hands, we invest in people. Another person raised their hands and said that relationships can become bankrupt or they're priceless. But all the while, we're using monetary economic terms to define what love is in our lives. I think perhaps that's the problem that we struggle with today is that we're using love like money, that we're cashing in when we need love or we're, uh, we're taking away from people that aren't giving what we need. And so um, just as I share that, I want you guys to kind of have that idea what is love and what metaphors do we use to understand love and how does the world do that compared to what Christ has done for us. Now he uses his metaphors to help us understand his love. So uh, we're going to go into John 4, 1 through 30. It's Yes, that's 30 verses, so it's a long passage, but I'm going to break it up. But I feel that in order to capture the full picture, we just have to read all of it. And as as we read the passage, uh, what I'm, the kind of the way I'm going to go through this is, we're going to go through questions, truth, response, and implications today. So we're going to see the part of the passage that looks at the questions, part of the passage where truth is revealed, a place where we respond to truth, and how that is uh, how that is applied in our lives. So John four one to thirty. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to come, have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband, and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have five husbands, and the man you have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Let us pray. God, we come before you knowing that we need so much more of you in our lives. Even standing before you on this Sunday morning, we realize how busy our lives can get. And these two hours we get to just sit and stand still before you is so precious, God. And I pray that you would use your word to begin to reveal in our hearts just the areas that you want to heal, the wounds that you want to uh, begin to just make your own, God. And, Lord, that this time would be a time where your name is lifted up. So, God, may you speak through me, God. May your heart uh, continue to be revealed through this message. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I think the first thing that I see that's going on is uh, the first couple verses give the background of what's going on. So Jesus is in this town called Sychar, and he's tired, and he's by the well. The disciples have left into town to grab food, and this woman approaches, the Samaritan woman. It's funny, because the first thing that Jesus does is he actually initiates. He's the one that asks the woman the question. He says, uh, "He says, will you give me a drink? I think that's important. That I think there's times in our lives where Jesus initiates questions, and for us, I think they're they're more than just uh, superficial, and for her, it was more than superficial. I think questions are used to produce two things. One is it shows a person's set of assumptions, and also it also provides an entry point into a conversation. So um, about a couple of years ago, I used to work at Abercrombie, and they had these things called loss prevention, and we had to watch these corny little videos about how we kind of uh, – track people that steal stuff and basically if we see someone stealing stuff we go up to them and go, Hey, you know, I see those jeans you have. There's a nice shirt that goes with it. Would you like to see would you like to see it? And so basically that question provides an entry point into that conversation. And also brings a set of assumptions that I I see that you might be stealing, but I'm giving you a way out. As Jesus comes, he comes with a set of questions. And between the verses seven through twelve, there's a dialogue of questions. And I'll just read that again. It says, When when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you have asked him, and he will have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flock and herds? And knowing the cultural background, um, what's going on is as she asks these questions of Jesus, I think behind it lies just some of the issues that she might be dealing with in her own life. Uh, One of the things, one of the major things I see is that in verse nine it says, "How can you ask me for a drink?" And the cultural understanding, a Samaritan and a Jewish person do not interact. And I think even deeper as we look into the passage is that this woman has been burned by five men. I think another man approaching her—that's a stranger coming to ask for a drink. I, I can't. I believe that there must be uh, just defense walls or. Warnings going on in her head, wondering, what are his intentions? What does he want? And as the dialogue continues in verse 11 to 12, it says, Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? I think the second part of what this question shows is a curiosity that, yeah, she's been broken and hurt. But at the same time, she's curious as to why this man is approaching her. And also, she's, a curious, she's curious that this man would break cultural barriers to just ask for a drink of water. I, I'm thinking in her head, there's probably a million things that are going on. And um, I think it just shows her curiosity and wondering, what is this Jesus up to? Or what is this man up to? And what is he trying to, um, what does he really want? And, I think sometimes when we get approached with questions by God, I think we do have our response. Some of us run away from it, right? There's questions that are deep in our hearts that we wonder, what is it about my life that you want from me, God? Or maybe, what does my life really mean? These questions are huge, but yet I think we allow ourselves to get busy. Maybe we continue to watch house, or we watch, we get lost in these different things that keep us from hearing the questions. I think oftentimes Jesus initiates those questions specifically because he wants to get at our heart and he wants to do something awesome in our lives. Uh, There's this song that uh, I've been listening to. It's by this group called Mainstay. And it says, in the second verse it says, So it seems that I'm wrong because I keep searching for the answers that I don't need. I know I don't need. I'll repeat it. So it seems that I'm wrong because I keep on searching for the answers that I don't need. I know I don't need. I think sometimes we're searching for the answers, but we're not asking the questions to Christ or to God. That we're looking at different things in our lives. Maybe it's to get more money. Maybe it's just those uh, simple things that people at the pulpit always preach about. But maybe it's really true that we're always striving for the answers, but we're not asking honest questions to God about ourselves and about him. Uh, The second part is verse 13 to 20. I feel like this is a part where God reveals truth. and says, I'll read it. It says, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks the water I I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right when you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands. The man you now have is not your husband. What you have said, what you, what you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. And the truth is revealed. I remember back in college, I worked out with my buddy. I won't give, give his name because it's a pretty embarrassing story. But uh, we used to always use the Stairmaster. And this time, uh, we got into the Stairmaster, and we're, we're you know, put it on level 10 and do it for maybe 15 minutes. I don't know how girls do it for anything longer than 15 minutes, but it's it's difficult. But anyways, um, we're going on it, and my friend on to the left, he's, he's just sweating profusely. So he, you know, back then we had these things called tearaway pants. And he tears away his pants, and I'm going. And then I look to the left, and he forgot to wear shorts. I looked at him, I was like, uh, I didn't know what to do because I wanted to give him the truth, but at the same time, I was just staring at him. I was like, brother, this is not good. And back at UIC, pretty much the cardio area was all girls. Cause, And I was just thinking, oh, man. I, I was like, hey, you know, you know you're not wearing any shorts. And he looked down, and I swear, you know, I, he just played it off. And he just like, put his it was tearaway pants, so he had to button each button and put them back on they hop back on when we finished our workout. But I just share that because I think in some ways, when the truth is revealed in our hearts, we don't know what to do, right? We sometimes react and we just get so embarrassed or so unsure of ourselves that we just freak out. And I have to think that when Jesus comes to this woman and says, you know, you know go get your husband. And she, goes, um, and, then you, and she goes, you know, I don't have a husband. And he goes, no, you've had five husbands and the man you're living with is not your husband. I'd be like, oh my gosh. You know, it's that moment of truth, of clarity where someone's actually called you out and you're so embarrassed and you don't even know what to think because you're so shocked. I think, you know, there's some, there's some people in my life that are like that, that come to me and call out truth. I get so embarrassed that I'm almost like this woman. I just play it off. You know, it's funny that, Jesus says all that and her response in verse 19. It says, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. And then she deflects it like Teflon. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we worship is in Jerusalem. And man, you know, she played off pretty well. I know if I was her, I'd be sitting there just nervous, sweating, just wondering how in the world does this guy know my life and my history? It's interesting the way Jesus points it out, right? Just as much as I could have looked at my buddy and just started making fun of him, started just being like, you know, hey, everybody, look at him, you know. It's funny that Jesus doesn't call her out in a way that maybe some of our hearts might call her out. You know, a a woman that's been with five other men. And you have to remember, in the culture that day, only men were allowed to initiate divorce. So in her life, five men have rejected her. And Jesus could have came up to her and said, Look, woman, look at the mess you've made of your life. Even five men don't want to be with you. And now look at your life now. You're living with another man that you're not even married to. What are you doing with your life? I think sometimes when we see other people, especially in moral dilemma, where they're struggling, where they're having a hard time, our response is so like that. We want to call them out. We're so sick of the way they're living, not because we're broken for their hearts, but because it pisses something inside of us off. And it's funny how Jesus gives truth with compassion. You know, he says, you know, he calls her out. But in the midst of all this, he initiated this conversation by asking this woman for a drink, knowing that it wasn't he who needed the drink, but it was her, that she was the one constantly looking for something to satisfy her. But yet, Jesus knew that and took such a, such a superficial question and brought it very deep into her heart. And the question I have for us is, how do we respond to truth when it happens in our lives? I think, for me, I'm not the greatest at it. You know, when someone says something that I have been trying to hide, all the defense mechanisms come up. The first thing I think when someone says something about me when I'm not in Christ is... All the things I see in them, you know, I might not have thought about it at the moment, or maybe even in the lifespan, but all of a sudden, my mind starts churning at a hundred miles per hour, thinking, "Man, you got problems too." And all of a sudden, I try to shift that fo- shift that blame, shift that uh, truth from me to that person. And the question is, how do we deal with truth, especially when God's trying to reveal it, whether it's through other people, or whether it's through the Word of God, or whether it's through uh, through prayer. How do we respond to truth? And also, as we are, I guess, as our eyes are open to truth and to other people's lives, do we share it with compassion or do we just call them out? I think the last part I see in this is a response. It's verse 21 to 30. I'll just read that. It says, Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. The first thing that I see that just jumps out at me is that, uh, is verse 28, then, Leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town. For a woman that came to the well to grab water, and her encounter with Christ leaves her leaving that water jar and running back to the town because she's met the Messiah. I wonder what our response is when we find truth. As uh, Jesus reveals this truth, he also responds to her saying that, you know, you Samaritans think this and we think this, but there's going to be one day where it doesn't matter whether you're Samaritan or Jew, that we all will worship the true and living God. I think for a woman that had been rejected five times by five different women, a woman that's been wounded and hurt, there's a glimmer of hope that came when Jesus spoke those words. There's something in what he said that caused her to leave that water jar behind and run to the town And as you look later on in this passage, it was enough that she shared this with the town. I wonder if there's questions and truth and responses in our lives that God is desiring so that we would leave the things that we came. She came with this water jar to be filled, but she left it behind because she saw her Savior. I think there's divine appointments in our lives where we come with something, but yet we leave that behind because we've met Jesus and his incredible love. And I guess this kind of leads me to just share about what God did throughout my life uh, this past summer and some of the difficulties I've gone through. And part of this passage is just seeing how it mirrors so much of my encounter with Christ and how through the questions, God reveals truth. And through that truth, not only does he cause me to respond, but he responds to that truth as well. And so uh, this summer... I've been doing about, I've been in ministry for almost about a little over a year. And I've been going at a breakneck pace. I was just thinking, out of the military, I was thinking, man, you know, I wake up at four in the morning, I do PT, and I like finish all these things. And by 10 o'clock, I'm asleep. And when I came back home, I was like, you know, civilian life, too easy. It's way too easy. So I went And I worked a full-time job. I was trying to do school full-time. And I was trying to do ministry full-time. And I was thinking, you know, everyone around me was like, man, Jason, you're doing such a good job. I don't know how you're doing this, but man. And it was that badge of honor I wore. I was like, yeah, you know, not only do I work a full-time job, but I'm going to school full-time. And um, I'm also uh, leading a ministry. And I was like so proud of it. And at the same time, I think what was happening was that I was so busy and so consumed in what I was doing that I spent less and less time with God. That the time I spent with God was to have a better insight, to have something uh, better to say when I counseled people, when I met with people. So that people could see how great I was doing. And so this summer came to a point where I felt that everything kind of just uh, went down the toilet. And and basically, uh, you know, my dad got sick. And I was struggling with my back problems. And there's just a lot of different things going on. in the midst of it, I just felt like as a minister, as a person, I just messed up and I failed. And and, by the grace of God, PD and POFO said, you know, take a sabbatical. Take some time away so that you can just meet with God. And right now, the demands of your life are too great. And basically, my days ended up, I was working 730 to 430. I would come home, or I would go to my dad's work because he couldn't work. I worked from 5 to 9, and then I'd come home to take care of my dad from, like, 9 to 11, and then listen to my mom, who's been taking care of my dad from, like, 11 to 1. And from, like, 1 to 3, I would just, like, cry myself to sleep because I just didn't know how I'd get through all of this. And so I think through it, God's word became so precious because I had nothing else to cling on to. And through my prayers, they weren't the most, I guess, quote, unquote, holiest of prayers. <laughs> but I was like, God, get me through this. Or oftentimes it'd be me complaining. I was like, God, why didn't you make me better? Because if I was better, I wouldn't be in this situation. I think uh, the blessing of God and the miracle of God was that even in the midst of these circumstances, he was able to carry me through. And I remember a pastor sharing this in his sermon that, you know, he thought that, you know, living by faith would be a time where, you know, he's proclaiming Christ and he gets imprisoned and then, you know, he's getting executed and this is his life lived for Christ. But he said, as he's uh, it was one of his last sermons, he's about, I think, 75 years old. He's saying the miracle of Christ was that he kept me faithful all these years, that it was that 10 $15 in that offering plate every Sunday for 50 years where God sustained me, and he's kept me faithful, and that was a real miracle of life. I sense that in my life, that's what God's trying to show me, that it isn't about these drastic, great things that we do, but it's in the quiet moments, in those daily moments where we spend with God, that mean the most. I feel that, as I want to share this passage, that what God's desiring is not just a love that we know of, but a love that is experienced. I remember Um, Just a little while back, when I was going through all this, I was reflecting on life. And there are certain commitments I want to make in life. And one of the things was, I want to ride a bike. But not just a bike, but a motorcycle. And there's uh, basically, we have a group of guys that we email with during the day. And then one of my friends, I wrote, you know, one of the commitments is, I want to learn how to ride a bike. And then, you know, we get a response back. And this guy's like, yeah, I want to learn how to ride a bike. I never got to as a child. I was like, too bad there's like we weren't all together because we'd be totally making fun of him. But in my computer, I just started laughing. I was like, and then I wrote back, um, I mean a motorcycle. <laughs> and then he was just like, oh, you know. And then we all felt bad or whatnot. But I think it kind of led me to this thinking that there's a lot of times in life where we think we know, and we know we maybe my friend, you know, he's seen people ride bikes. He's seen five year olds ride bikes. But because he's never actually done it, he doesn't really know how to ride a bike. And it's funny because I think so much of our lives, we know of God's love. We can recite all the passages. You, know, you can come to people and they'll tell you, yeah, God loves me. I know that God loves me. But when was the last time we've experienced that kind of love in our lives? When's the last time we've actually had an encounter like this woman where we are so captivated by God's love that we're willing to leave everything behind and be able to share it among so many. And through this summer, that was what God did in my life. And as I was being broken, God was trying to reveal deeper things in my heart. And it was funny because, just to share something personal, as growing up, like many, I had a mother that was almost omnipresent, that wherever I was, she was, and whatever I was doing, she knew about And she was involved with, I think through the years, my heart and her heart grew apart because she wants so many things for me, but I couldn't make my own decisions. It's funny because when I went to college, you know, maybe some other people rebel in certain ways, but my rebellion was StarCraft and working out and not doing well in school. And so that's what I invested my time in. And me and my, my relationship with my mom and I just grew further and further apart as I blamed her about my own academics. And it was funny because this summer I got an opportunity to talk with a lot of the younger uh, high school students, and they're going through the same struggles of a mother trying to push upon a future that they're not really sure of. And so it was this one night I was sleeping, and I'm not into dreams or visions or anything like this, but um, I remember it was like almost 10 years ago, I saw myself, I was with my mom, and we we're arguing back and forth and we we're just yelling at each other. And it was like me back in my high school days, uh, we're going at it. And then, you know, out of nowhere, like I never swear at my parents. I swore at her. And then in my head, I'm like, oh my gosh, I just swore at my parents. I was like, sh- so shocked. But yeah, I was like so angry in the moment. And this is my dream that I just run upstairs. And then it's like I run and then I go into this room. It's like I'm in the arms of God. And and then I hear God whisper in my heart. He says, repent, repent. And my heart is so angry, so frustrated at my mom that it says, you know, I'm not the one with the problems she is. She's the one that's trying to thrust her thoughts and her future into my life. She's the one that can't accept me for who I am. And there, it was as clear that God just spoke to me and said, you know what, Jason? In your mom, you're seeking unconditional love, but she's the person that needs it from me. And in my life, I think what I realized is that um, so much of me has been searching for that love and so many other things. And it it came full circle when I realized that the person I was seeking it the most in was my mom. And why I was so angry, why I was so bitter at her was because I felt like she couldn't love me unconditionally. And Christ had called me to repentance because what he has called me is to seek that love from the one that can give it unconditionally. And not from my mother, but from the one who's gave it all on the cross. I share that because I feel that for some of us, we have our water jar, jars that we have to leave at the well. That we have to accept the love and not just know it as a fact, but experience it as truth in our lives. I know that may, maybe some of us are going through experiences right now that are trying, that are hard, that are difficult. Maybe we're seeking that love in so many other things. But God is compassionate. And whenever he reveals that truth, he does it with compassion. And I firmly believe that as a church, as we begin to understand that vertical relationship with Christ, as we reach up towards Christ, we'll find a Savior that's been chasing us from the time we were born to this moment now. As we realize a Savior that has been seeking us, that has been initiating conversation with us, we'll find a love that'll captivate us into a way that we'll never fully understand but we can't help to share to those across and around us. So oh, let's just take some time to pray and to seek God's heart, to see what he's trying to say through all of this. Because I believe as we encounter Christ's love, that it captivates us. That it's not, not something that is so elusive, so far apart. But as we ask those questions, as he reveals that truth, and as we respond, his love can transform us. Let us pray. I've walked with Christ for almost 14 years. There's been so much that I've gone through with him. As I grow older, maybe my heart grows colder. I'm not sure. But this summer, he showed me something so great, so awesome, that his love is greater than anything else in this world. And my prayer This morning is that you guys wouldn't just know of this love. But you would experience it. That Jesus had come to give us life. And life to the fullest. As good as we get in being Christian. The impact in this world will only come. As long as we understand the impact that Christ has had on us. That our ability to love others and to share this love is so dependent on us depending on Christ's love. This is how we know what love is Jesus Christ laid down the life for us. Lord, we come before you knowing that so many times we coast through this life, that some of the things that ought to touch our hearts. Make us so callous. But Lord, I pray that you would break through in this congregation, God. That you would bring revival, not just an emotional experience, but God, one firmly based on your truth, that you have loved us, God. And the work done on the cross is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't live without hope. But God, that as you respond to our questions, as you reveal truth, that we would see hope that captivates us, to know that the lives we live and the power that we have in you is not power of just forgiveness, but it is power to overcome sin. And Lord, that all you call us to do is to stand in that victory. So Lord, be with us, God. Preach to us, speak to us. Help us understand this love. Help us leave whatever it is at that well as we encounter you and to run into this world and share this love. We thank you, Jesus. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon
0: from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.